Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devi Kagirish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I am reporting from the sunny, or maybe not so sunny, shores of Cannes. The 2023 Cannes Festival is currently underway, and as news of spit takes and hot takes, raves and pans, walkouts and standing ovations flood your feed, the Film Comment crew will keep you up to date on all the cinematic goings-on at the Crosset with dispatches, interviews, podcasts, and more. So make sure to subscribe to the Film Comment podcast and the Film Comment letter and follow along. Hello and good morning from the 2023 Cannes Film Festival. I have gathered a lovely group of critics to give you the rundown of the last couple of days' premieres, which had some big names. So y'all better get excited for what is to come. I'd love my compatriots here to introduce themselves. Um, let's start with Abby. Hi, I'm Abby Sun, and I'm the director of artist programs at the International Documentary Association and also a freelance film critic and so on and so forth. Amazing. Kelly? I'm Kelly Weston. I'm a freelance film critic and programmer based in Brooklyn um, and a regular contributor to Film Comment. And... The debutante on today's podcast, Lovia, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Lovia Jache. I'm a critic at The Hollywood Reporter, and I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Devika. Great to have you. So the movie that I think Lovia, Kelly, and I saw last night, I think it's like so fresh in my mind, and I really have been just dying to talk about it with people. So let's get into it. May, December, Todd Haynes. Um, <laughs> I have been waiting for this movie for a long time. And Kelly, do you want to tell sure. us what it's about? Sure. Yeah, I'll yeah. give a little rundown. Um, so, I mean, I think it is quite obvious once you get very deep into the story, and this will probably be out there, so it's not a spoiler to say that the root of this film is the Mary Kay Letourneau case, which right. happened in the late 90s, where a sixth grade teacher who I think was in her early to mid 30s had an affair with her student who was 13 years old at the time. Um, I feel so ashamed. I, should, I can't remember what his name is. Um, but uh, essentially this case like rocked the 90s. And I think we're we've been having all of these um I guess you can say sort of, uh, you know, revisions or or look backs at, at all of the ways that we kind of fucked up. <laughs> and uh, this case was, you know, all over the tabloids and, and that kid wasn't treated with a lot of care. But the Todd Haynes film is about, you know, this woman who similarly had an affair with her student when he was 13 years old. That woman is played by Julianne Moore um, and her student is played by Charles Melton for the Riverdale girls out there. Not me, but I'm just saying. She said be safe. <laughs> Reggie Mantle from Riverdale for the Riverdale girls, also not me. Okay, I'm just saying. And we love that community. i just not a part of that. <laughs> but um, he uh, he is like they are now like the um, parents of I think three kids. There's two. There's the twins I and then an older daughter. Parents of twins. Isn't the older yeah. daughter from her previous? No, no. no they, is the yeah. oh yeah. Oh, they wow. have an older daughter who yeah. comes back home from, from college. college. Yeah. And then they have the twins who are getting ready to graduate high school. And at the same time, Natalie Portman uh, is playing this actress. 
Elizabeth Perry, I think it is, who Barry. is Barry, yeah. who has come to portray, or she was basically come to do kind of, you know, research um, in the way that actors do. I love Todd Haynes. I think you're right, Devika. Like, this really is his wheelhouse, you know, domesticity, melodrama. There's this, and maybe we'll get into it more, but there's this very strange leitmotif that is happening in the film. You know, I can't even describe it. It's just like a gong that's like melodramatic. And it's like you're in the middle of a soap opera and at like at the height of particular dramatic moments, it would just be like, <laughs> it's just like very, very strange. But he, he brings, you know, his kind of shall we say, like, you know, Circean touch mm. to this as well. So it very, it does feel like of a piece, like you said, was safe. Um, in some ways, it is also, I guess, a little bit like far from heaven. Like, but it, but it's just a, right. it's a, it's a really um, interesting film that I, I have a lot of thoughts about, a lot of conflicting thoughts, I should say. I mean, okay. I, I have to say, I walked out and I felt incredibly uncomfortable yeah, by it. so did I. Um, and I was deeply surprised because I think of him as a much more thoughtful and considerate director when it comes to these kind of intimate relationships. And I wasn't sure how, I, I wasn't sure about the, the tone of this film felt very off to me. So um, that's it for me. Love you. Yeah, I don't have many more thoughts than that as I'm, I also saw it last night and um, as I was just telling you guys, did not get that much sleep. So it's still gestating, but I, I would really like to discuss sort of the high camp um, mm -hmm. tone of it all, which I don't know given the subject matter totally jived with me. Um, and sitting in that theater last night, I think I talked to Kelly about this we were leaving it was so bizarre to be in a theater where everyone was laughing at every scene mm. and i do think that there are touches where there is consideration you know mm. which we i think we talked about on the walk home last night but it still felt um it still felt a little odd a little um felt a little removed from from the audience a little mm. bit and so I'd be curious if you guys had that same experience yeah. or if you didn't or if this is something that I need to you know similar to zone of interest gestate and see yeah. again although my reaction to zone of interest was more um immediately imp impressed <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I think I'm all on board with this film yeah. and I think that for me the camp and the comedy really works mm -hmm. because of a few reasons so the film, because of Natalie Portman's character and because the film is actually, you know, we, we learn of the story through an actress mm -hmm. who is doing research for a role for a movie. Um, I feel like the butt of the joke is more this desire to mm -hmm. extract the story and turn it into a performance. Yeah. And that truly is campy and funny. Like, mm -hmm. Todd Haynes didn't even have to make it campy. <laughs> mm -hmm. That is just campy and funny. Yeah. And, um, you know, Kelly, you were talking about the sound design. And there's also these, we should mention these, like, really soapy zoom-ins. Yeah. Yeah. There's one early on that, I mean, guys, come on, that was funny. I don't think we have enough yeah. hot dogs. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. You know, yeah, and uh, <laughs> Todd Haynes has always you know, played with these uh, vernacular genres, right? Like the soap, the women's film, the melodrama. I mean, he did uh, sort of his music documentary, you know, with the Velvet mm -hmm. Underground. So he's always taken like genres that are, are you know, very embedded in American like 
image culture and then he always does something a little different with them like does his own sort of take on them while still being very aware of the tropes and conventions and I think that it always leads I've always felt that his films have this like really perfect like balance of irony where there is an awareness that he's making a movie and playing with the codes of these genres which he clearly knows and loves so he's not just parodying them right he's Mm -hmm. clearly a lover of melodrama he's a lover of soaps I Mm -hmm. think but at the same time, there is a real emotional sincerity in his films and in this film where I felt that even though it had that element of camp and a little bit of remove, at the same time, I thought it had a lot of compassion. And I should note that the son, uh, not the son, God, the husband, yeah, Jesus. But, yeah. Well, that, I mean, yeah. yeah. That, that, <laughs> he is never, from my memory of the film, he's never the butt of a joke. You know, like he's never just like a, he's never made out to be a buffoon. I actually found him to be a very affecting Mm -hmm. character. And also, even though the film is not a documentary or anything, somehow very emotionally realistic. Like, this is clearly a more complex story than someone who went in with, you know, already having like a certain moral framework would have depicted it. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's why... It's so puzzling, right? Like they married, Mm. they ended up living for so many years and there's something puzzling about it. There's something not puzzling about it. Mm. But I felt that the the guy played by Charles Melton, Joe, his character Mm. name, I thought he emerged as a very, very moving character. Mm. And his arc where he goes from being this sort of fixture in the background to slowly like articulating his feelings and how that is triggered by the intervention of this actress who's clearly very selfish and narcissistic Mm -hmm. and how he sort of gets caught between these two women and then arrives at that realization. I found that really moving and I found the characterization of Julianne Moore's character just pretty incredible, to be honest, because I think there is an element of compassion for her as well, you know? And at the same time, There is also, you know, she's, there's some, another like sort of funny scene was when she's just like incredibly mean to her daughters, clearly passing on trauma from like family trauma. Mm -hmm. But she's also like very slippery in the sense that I don't think we are supposed to leave the film actually knowing her. Oh, not at all. I mean, there's so much of the film, well, actually two things. I want to say so much of the film is obviously about performance Mm -hmm. and that tension between these two women. It's giving persona yeah. naturally perhaps even helplessly but I'm almost certain that he did that you know there, there's a scene the in the mirror scene yeah exactly persona. that's what I was gonna say yeah. the mirror scene is entirely persona yeah. and I think it's very true that the Charles Melton character is dealt with um so with with great compassion I mean he's an incredibly tragic character um there's a scene in the, f- in the film that happens with Natalie Portman that is just devastating because you actually get to s- experience fully the depth of his trauma mm-hmm. um, in a way that's like very subtle and is not like, you know, expressed. It's not like actually like stated, right? Like you just get to like see this person be stunted, yeah. essentially. And Natalie Portman ultimately says to him this thing that is like cutthroat. She says, this is just what grownups do. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. It's, like, I think I was on the, I mean, it was 11 o'clock at night and I hadn't eaten, but I will say I was on the verge of tears and who Aww. can say <laughs> what that was? What the conditions were. Right? <laughs> but it's, you, you know, it's it's definitely very heartbreaking. I think 
my critique is is just that I think I felt that it was a little too restrained. And I also mm. want to be very self-aware about my own limits with this. Like, I remember that case quite vividly. Mm. Um, I was saying also to Lovia last night, um, hopefully not to blow up her, her spot, but my mom taught at a, at a school where a similar situation had happened. Ooh, and so as a kid, okay. I heard about this a lot. And I think, too, you know, I remember the actual guy had, uh, you know, his life after that was incredibly tragic you know I think he dealt with addiction and alcoholism and um the class distinction between the real life case and what's happening in the film where they're quite well off they like I think they like sold their wedding pictures or something and they got this big house in Savannah and even that is a performance right like this performance of you know marital bliss and and happy domesticity and the white fans exactly and then as you get as Natalie Portman's character gets deeper and deeper she realizes that it's all a facade that she's actually not well liked and that you know she doesn't really have this thriving baking business and Mm -hmm. um I just I don't know I think (laughs) I'm making funny faces Abby's like what what? is this <laughs> and that's exactly the attitude exactly. you need going in. Absolutely, um, but I think it's just you know it's it, it it made me think of so many things, and and I think it just made me feel um, deeply aware of, and perhaps this is the point, right? Like, but just made me feel deeply aware of how. Um, how much situations like this that are incredibly painful have yeah. incredibly uh, deep, deep repercussions and consequences for people is often treated with this kind of like, you know, gloss, this this glossy fodder mm-hmm. for us to sort of just like eat up and then completely move on. Yeah. Um, interesting. We'll talk about this film later. But, you know, in Killers of the Flower Moon, Robert Darren has an incredible, he has he says a salient line that is just like, uh, wow, what a quote for the ages where he's like, people move on. People will forget. Yeah. They don't care. And I think like that, I think it, it, it was that just like watching this film and being in tension, I think with, you know, knowing certain particulars about the case just made me feel again that however much this is, you know, and it is like a really dynamic and I think in many ways, like really incisive portrait mm. that it is also in a way an extension of this you know, repackaging of someone else's horror. And I mm. guess I just don't, I, maybe that's just like an ethical thing. And it's, it's in some ways, some people would think that this is like distinct from a, cr- a critical perspective, but I don't do criticism like that. And I can't do it no, like I that. No, I think, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. I, no, no, I think, uh, I just wanted to say, I think that's a valid way of looking at it. I mean, I, I don't think I agree with that reading, but not because, you know, I'm like, well, uh, no ethics on the film comment <laughs> <Yeah>. podcast. <laughs> I, I just found, I don't know, I think that, for example, um, there's a way of talking about this case that takes away the agency of the Joe character, yeah. you know, completely, right? And like, that is what people grapple with is that he is out here for the first two thirds of the film being like, I wanted it. She saw me. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you convey the trauma or victimhood of a person who says they're not a victim? Because that is also a harmful thing to do to make someone a victim when they don't see themselves as one. And I think the film did that so well of like, what you were just describing, Kelly, of slowly pulling apart their lives. And it didn't have this moment of him being like, I was abused. I suddenly realized. But it's like slowly him coming to terms with the fact that 
his own perspective of his life is stunted or limited. And crucially, that that happens because of, you know, they say like, oh, the tabloids and everything finally died down and now you're back here to Natalie Portman's character. That that happens because this woman inserts herself into their lives. And then mm. you have to grapple with the fact that like she selfishly did this, as we realize, like even though she paints herself as trying to help this guy out and <laughs> give him advice. Yeah. I mean, the scenes of her reenacting parts of their lives... And there's like an Oscar speech in the background. I mean, <laughs> that is the highest, the high, high, high camp yeah, of yeah, the film. Yeah. Um, and then you have to grapple with the fact like, okay, did she like ruin their life or fix his life? Like what is, you know. I don't know if it's that binary though. You don't this, think so? No, because I think she herself and, you know, in the end sort of feels to me like sort of recognizes how she won't ever really know this family and so i i think of it as just an intervention mm. and interventions have to be neither good or bad they're just things that happen and have A set change. things in motion yeah. right and so mm. things have been set in motion and that seems to be her role i also just want to say that i mean natalie portman is incredible yes. <laughs> this i want to get yeah. to the Fantastic. performances but, before yeah. we move on so but, uh, yeah so, please yeah, I don't know if it has to be... I don't know if I walked away thinking, has she done this for better or for worse? Mm. Uh, because that wasn't really her intention going. And I mean, she obviously performed as if I'm here to do this sort of altruistic yeah. thing and tell your story. Mm. But even the way that she explained what that meant was so um, vague and self-serving. So. And she's also like... I mean, obviously, the Natalie Portman character is like a consummate performer. Former, yeah. And I think we see several instances of her... Uh, you know, she's she's actually like very socially astute. Mm -hmm. Like the way that she talks to people is just quite at once, you know, diplomatic, and she seems to have a lot of yeah, oh, very strategic, and she seems to have a lot of compassion and grace, but she doesn't. She's a hugely ambitious person, mm -hmm. um, and I don't know. I I completely agree with you. Now, as 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 Lovia knows, <laughs> I am. Natalie Portman Hive day one. <laughs> the Hive will be eating Good off for the Natalie skull. Portman girls. Not me. Yeah. Oh dear. No, no. I, I, I think Kelly and I have had this conversation. Yeah, we have also had this. I, we have had this we conversation. Have. I'm remembering our conversation. Kelly has I'm, a look of anger on her no, face. It's a, I've never like been a stan, let's yeah. just say, but I think she's incredible in this film. Yeah. I think Julianne Moore is expectedly incredible. Yeah. I, I, he extracts these performances and in this case you know natalie portman is playing like an actress you know an actress playing an actress yeah. who is trying to embody julianne moore's character yeah. and julianne moore has this like lisp um that natalie portman like slowly Which starts to kind about. of absorb mm -hmm. so it in many ways it's also really a film about performance mm -hmm. that you can inter like that uh, the various connotations of that word like socially in terms of you know culturally but I, I have to say Charles Melton, again, whose credits include like Riverdale, you know, he was in, apparently in Glee for like one minute at some point. I looked up his what? filmography <laughs> yesterday. Oh. But basically he I'll hasn't... i have to go back and... You know, archives. Yeah. <laughs> All the seasons. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is like his first major film role. He's done mm, some films, yeah. but like an acting, you know, capital mm -hmm. A acting role. Mm -hmm. yeah. And... I think he's just, you know, we we talked about his character, like, mm. tragic and moving, and so much of that is coming from his performance, mm. where, again, he could have played the character kind of one note or in a very simple way as, like, a dunce, as, like, mm. or as someone who's, like, you know, 
he's so good looking mm-hmm. and like sort of like very confident about you know where he's at. but it's it just like it's a very fine line getting like that character to feel the way he comes off in yeah. the movie and I just want to give him his flowers Absolutely. I do I agree Absolutely. completely and I know we have to like move on very quickly yeah. but I also want to say that you know part of what I find so interesting about his performance is that he's actually not, you know, he's he's not like a passive guy. No. He's just kind of very reserved. And you begin to, as you, you get closer and to kind. him. And kind. So kind. He's yeah. so kind. Oh, my God. I love he's his so, relationship to insects. Yeah. But like know, also his relationship. Oh, sorry. His kid, oh, his, no. Please, Kelly. We do this all time. Yeah, we, no, go ahead, Kelly. <laughs> we do just his, his, you're right, his relationship to insects. Yeah. He his relationship to his children as well. And you begin to see, you know, how young he is mm-hmm. with them and in several really um beautiful moments. But um, yeah, I really loved his performance. I think the thing that also comes out in the writing that I actually really do like is that you begin to see how these and I do think it's important to say these white women project onto him. Like Absolutely. Natalie Portman says he has a quiet confidence even when he was a boy. And it's like, what? And he's 13. <laughs> right. right. Like, yeah. And then also Julianne Moore, who's like, he seduced me. And and those things are like, you know, not loud. Like they're not explicit, but they are like very subtle instances of the racial dynamic between all of these characters. No, and, that's, that's yeah. a very good point. And I, she also says... I remembered him. I always knew he who he was because he they were the only Korean family in the neighborhood. Yeah, and he's, yeah. Like, he's like half, half. half yeah. you know. And yeah, those there are little moments where, without overdoing it, without over determining that as a factor, the mm-hmm. film brings out the fact that he is othered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in mm-hmm. these ways. Yeah, I think we're going to be talking about this movie for a long time. Yeah. I think people I have are, to see it again. Yeah, maybe this, I'll change my mind. Yeah. You've given me much to think about. Oh, yeah. well, you know, that's what I aim to do here. As the editor of film comment. No, but I, I really think this is just people are people are going to like this film a lot. Mm-hmm. People are also going to have a lot of opinions about it. So mm-hmm. it's just we're going to talk about it for yeah, a minute. Yeah, I mean, you know. Gen Z film Twitter and social yeah, media's no, favorite critique of, <laughs> you know, this film has not even been mentioned in this conversation so far. So I'm just waiting. Let me it. just say, well, I'm yeah. not a part of that community either. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, Kelly's just like, no. I'm not on that club, that club, or that club. Uh, well, let us move on quickly to another film that is about, like, relationships and mm-hmm. the, the kind of, and, you know, some... Yes, there's some age gap discourse in this film too. Let's yeah, just say that. There is. Uh, and I'm talking about the feeling that the time for doing something has passed by Joanna Arno, who is a an independent filmmaker in New York. And Abby, I know you saw this. You want to tell us, like, lead us into the convo. Yeah. So this is a um, film about a thirty-something-year-old. Um, woman who is stuck in a low-level corporate job doing something vaguely media-related. Mostly, it appears to us, um, transferring, downloading, and uploading large video files um, for some sort of e-learning company. Um, And um, the scenes of her work life, family life, um, which uh, a large perhaps loving but not quite understanding Jewish family, and then her sex life, which is fully half of the film, um, make up the arc of the story. And it really, it's the narrative, any narrative thrust mostly comes through um, her exploration of um, being a submissive in the kink scene um, and moving from... um, 
well, I don't think this is a spoiler to say this, but like moving from only solely having what she calls sex friends um, and perhaps um, actually finding something that has uh, more emotional and relational depth. I should also mention that this is not purely a fiction film. It's definitely in the autofiction realm. So Joanna Arnaud, the director, uh, plays the lead character. And she has even cast her own parents as um, the parents of her character in the film. Um, it's not supposedly autobiographical, but it is based off of experience, she said, um, that she's had herself and those of her friends, and it is being presented as a sort of sequel to her first feature, which is also hybrid but more on the documentary side of things um, from 10 years ago called I Hate Myself, which is from when she was 24. It's actually called, uh, it's all lowercase, and it's I Hate Myself smiley, smiley face. face. It's so funny. Yeah. Um, and um, that's actually also about an interracial relationship that she had um, and her parents who are seen in the film yelling at her, but she's also kind of an instigator provocateur. So one of the things that really struck me about this film is like it really feels like a maturation, like a like a maturing filmmaker, a lot more in control of her craft and um, a lot more kind of like interested in the motivations of all of these small um, and perhaps larger characters around her. Um, yeah, maybe oh, I should mention um, kind of the dr drama of the film is instigated by in the beginning. She has a relationship with an older man named Alan, who's in his 50s, um, and he breaks off their master dominant submissive relationship with her. Um, and she is shown <laughs> um, on the subway. I mean, it's fantastic. Basically, the, the structure of the film, and I'll stop talking after this. The structure of the film is that it's a series of vignettes, and they alternate between sex, work, sex, family, sex, work, sex, family, so on and so forth. And each vignette is like 20 seconds long. It's maximum like three interchanges between the characters. Um, so at first, it felt to me quite twee, potentially, because it's, it's pretty... Um, staged and a lot of the characters are all delivering their lines in this kind of flat effect um but it really i think drives home what happens in the second half of the film i found it just i don't know as like a 30 something year old woman um you know trying to figure out one's way in the world it's just it's it's it like really hit home mm. for me Lovia? um that was a a very beautiful rundown of the film. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I was just telling you guys before that I I watched it twice, actually, because mm. the first time I wasn't totally taken with it. And the second time is like really grown on me and I'm still thinking about it. There is this like intimacy and warmth to it. And one of the things I really appreciate is the editing style and that sort of like blunt style of editing but also the concision within each scene um it makes a lot of the more it makes some of the jokes land really well some of the more yeah. intimate moments feel um quite surprising where you're like mm. oh that was incredibly incredibly sweet um and I think that it really for me 
captured the sort of like elliptical aspect of progress and of moving mm. forward. Um, the fact that life isn't a series, you know, in a, in, in a narrative feature, your life sort of follows a specific arc and you as, you know, the heroine ends up triumphant and changed or or not. But, you know, her, Arnaud's film has this really interesting cadence and rhythm of like progression, progression, regression, progression, mm. regression that I really thought was so true to life I thought yeah. some of the scenes especially at her job and just like really like reveling in the mundanity of like corporate life um were really spot on and I'm just like I'm very really I'm really interested in representations of work on screen and yeah. so it reminded me it's it's one of the best that I've actually seen um so far uh and it kind of reminded me of the, I don't know if any of you have seen the African Desperate, Martine Sims <laughs> film, but it gave me a little bit of that vibe too. Um, so yeah. yeah, so I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm sort of pausing because I'm surprised by my own growing relationship to the yeah. film. And I, and I wonder how, if that's also part of the experience, you know? Yeah. I feel very similarly um, to both of you. I think the f when the film started, it was funny, but I did find it twee. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of New York film yes. people yeah. in there. Insider yeah. 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 yeah, who appear in party scenes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's insidery. And also it, it does have like a New York indie vibe. So it has this, like Abby was saying, flat affect, you know, really um, impassive line delivery and these kinds of... Um, masochistic humor maybe mm. which which I feel is uh, a little bit of a trend in mm. some of these movies mm -hmm. and so I was like this is funny but this feels kind of familiar and yeah it, and I wonder if it's going to penetrate this kind of exterior of irony mm. and it did and it actually I I almost you know I had a similar reaction to you both where it just it actually hit me somewhere deep and I think because the first maybe one third of the film where she's with Alan and then she's shopping around for a new dom, mm. they are still sort of comedic and removed. But slowly you start to see that as as much as she puts up this facade of, or maybe it's not a facade, maybe it's just her personality, she really does want something. Like she's trying to figure out something in life. There is a quest underneath it all. Mm -hmm. And without spoiling it too much, she meets someone that introduces her to a new type of relationship, mm -hmm. right? And that sequence is so adorable and moving, that entire part of the film. I was surprised at how Joanna Arno like started with this kind of irony and then really gave the film to a, to a very open emotional space, you know, yeah. which I think, again, a lot of um, indie directors, I think, tend in one or the other direction like this balance of having that comedic that wryness but then also being open to vulnerability and mm -hmm. sentimentality which that arc is just so moving where you see her slowly getting used to being treated kindly getting used to like maybe falling in love and it also captures the dynamics of dating modern dating really well where she's like can we make an outside plan so I know we're not sex friends? <laughs> oh my god, that yeah. seems you know? real. Yeah. So just yeah, it just captures that contemporary, just the struggle of like how do you name things? How do you like you want she and another very interesting line is 
where, you know, she says to this new guy, like, people can like more than one type of relationship. And Mm -hmm. it's great because it's not, it's not painting her kink preferences as some kind of shameful thing that, you know, meeting the right man would solve. It's more like this is uh, her preference. But at the same time, she's also capable of being changed and touched and loved and moved. Yeah, you know, one thing I found interesting about that, that sort of, uh, that later relationship is how um, the vulnerability to me, and I, I'd be curious if if you two found this as well, was her introducing and pe- being really communicative about um, starting this new sub and sub dom relationship and helping her partner kind of understand yeah, what r- she's is like required. Training him yeah, she's tra- at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought that was really. Um, I don't know. I think it was like, I was like, that you're in some ways a, a different, you've grown, you know, you're a different character than you were at the beginning. Yeah. And so there was that like, this sort of like overarching progress. And I, I felt really proud of her, you know? <laughs> I was like, Anne, okay, like you are, you have agency, yeah. you know? And um, I, I don't know. I thought that was a really subtle way of, of, of getting into that. You know. I think the way that the film treats agency is really complicated and subtle and like gave me a lot of insights into my own life Mm -hmm. actually so I'm so glad you brought that up um because we're given the sense that Joanna Arno's character at the beginning is dismissive in her kink relationships because she likes being told what to do because she doesn't want to think for herself there's a couple of scenes where the doms are asking her what do you like and she's completely unable to articulate her own wants and desires um and this is also mirrored at work actually um which is super super fascinating there's also this kind of amazing what i call slow walking that she does at work because her job is to make her own job obsolete but (laughs) (laughs) which is a thing that happens so often anyway um but she just never makes her own job obsolete so she's still working there um and she's pushing against time in a way yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and you're so right like the the movements of the job her body language there's a lot of uh, it's not literalized, but this, I mean, the the title of the film, you know, mm-hmm. um, which, which is com- great, by the way, yeah, yeah. and which <laughs> comes up in a, another like quite a lovely scene. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there is this feeling that she is pushing against time a little bit because she has the understanding that she has not found what she had hoped to find mm-hmm. by by now. Oh, yeah. One thing we should mention, too, is um, because this is great. There's a, She has an older sister mm-hmm. um, who is really kind of presented a little bit as a foil yeah. who has children and, you know, their parents have given up on her <laughs> ever having children because she's in her mid-30s. Um, and it's on, never, on Anne ever having children. On Anne yeah. ever Not having children. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not the sister. Yeah. Um, but then there's a point in which the sister... Um, has a you know something happens in her relationship and this sister um comes to stay with Anne yeah um and there's just a lot of things that happen where 
Joanna Arno's character starts asserting in her own subtle ways, which leads back to like training the boyfriend who is not kinky yeah. at first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the secret of the sub is that they're always in control, right? So <laughs> it just takes her a second to realize that. Yeah. Um, and I just I just also want to just emphasize the form of the film, the cutting that Abby oh, mentioned. Yeah. So a lot of the things that we're describing, like Alan breaks his relationship, something happens to the sister is not portrayed or told to us in a direct way. There are these abrupt cuts in and out of these vignettes, and it takes us a few seconds to put together what might have happened. Mm -hmm. So I just, you know, I do appreciate that about the film a lot, these ellipses, these kind of the submergence of narrative, like Mm. under the surface somewhat, which um, just a lot of the film is about very familiar things, but because of the way it's shot uh, and cut, it makes it, you know, it kind of rips the cliche off of a lot of this and mm-hmm. and allow, at least allowed me to kind of experience experience them in a more raw way uh, than if it had been like more narrativized, I guess. Yeah. yeah, that's true. So the middle section of the film is like her, um, uh, Devika, how did you describe it earlier? Like trying shopping for a new dom. Um, so we... Um, uh, it's implied that she uses like an app for BDSM relationships um, and she goes on all of these different dates with potential doms and, you know, some of them develop further than others. But it really gives us a sense also of like the New York, I don't know, male creative scene stars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a children's movie soundtrack composer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, and, it, you know, there's there's another <laughs> New York indie film here um, that also, you know, takes us on a little bit of a tour of different subcultures of the U.S. This one, I think it's just like so gently skewers um, yeah. a lot of the guys and their foibles and she does some quite cringy things as well. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Lovia, I know you have to head off. What are you seeing? I'm seeing Riddle of Fire. So, and it's at Arcade, so I have to All right. speed walk. Well, but this we will was, liberate you. Oh, no, well, <laughs> I'm sad I can't stay for the the last film. Yeah. But I just want to say that I loved that. So. Which, which actually just, you oh. maybe just mention it, and then you can just mic yes. drop and leave. And then I'll mic drop. Yeah, yeah. How to Have Sex, um, Molly Manning Walker's debut um, is... I mean, I, I was deeply moved by that film and just sort of the way that it depicts these, um, these ki- these this group of teens who go on this sort of one final high school, like post high school vacation um, to inaugurate college. And I felt like the in the UK, in right? the UK very yes, important I think to mention they just cultural took their context. GS- <laughs> they just took their GSE. C's? Is that what? GCSC. Yeah. G- GCSC. Sorry, yeah. I'm yeah. not British. Why are they looking at me? Yeah, lo- Kelly, our London correspondent. Our UK informant. <laughs> um, and they're just taking these exams. They're about to go to uni. You know, they've had, they're trying to preserve 
I think, a sense of their dynamic and their friendship. They're really three close friends. Um, but they also just want to have a really good fucking time. And they're going to try and have sex with as many people as possible and drink um, as many days as they can. And Ugh. eat and as many chips slash fries as possible. <laughs> and... You know, then it takes an incredibly devastating mm. turn. Like the film starts out as this sort of almost like Love Island esque. Mm. Like they're in Malia and they're partying and they're with these other um, these other groups of friends. You know, and and then one of the characters, the main character, who's I mean, the actress is is incredible in, in that role. Um, you know, she really wants to lose her virginity, and then she does, and the experience is really not what she expected and it, it kind of takes this um violent subtly violent turn and mm. and the rest of the film deals with her processing the aftermath of that assault and i just i mean there are just so many things i admire about the film um but i think in particular it's the lead's performance and how her she name goes is mia mckenna bruce mia mckenna bruce yes who goes from this i found slightly irritating party girl mm. um and and sort of withdraws and and goes into herself mm. and watching the dynamics established at the beginning of the film with the friends becomes sort of a problem right for how they're not able to there's really one see that's her. not a good friend yeah, yeah. the yeah. bad friend and i wish that was teased out a little bit more mm, i don't yeah. know how you feel about that abby but yeah um anyway love this film <laughs> gotta thank go you for that. <laughs> Um, thank you so much you for having me. You can listen to our uh, responses to your comments yes. on the Film Comment Podcast. I will be tuning in like everyone else to hear what you guys thought. Um, but thank you so much for yeah, having thank me. Thank you, Olivia. And, uh, we'll see you around. Enjoy the rest of the club. Yeah. All right. Abby, what did you think of this movie? I really agree with Olivia. It's like um, the first half is slightly irritating, I think, if you never were or never aspired to be one of these crazy spring break partiers, which is in the US, this would be spring you know, yeah. break for us as opposed to the post A-levels. I don't know. Maybe that's also spring break. I'm not quite sure the timeline. <laughs> um, Kelly, explain. <laughs> I'm also looking at Kelly again. Like, I don't understand the timeline of this film. But... Um, but I really think that in this film, the fact that this um, really charged sexual experience, I, I think there, there's kind of two experiences in the film. The first one I think is really, really ambiguous about what is going on. The second about one consent. I about yeah. consent. The second one I would say is really not ambiguous, yeah. um, and I would absolutely detail the second experience in assault, which is addressed in the film. But the first experience happens less than halfway through the film. Um, and we're left to guess a little bit what happens afterwards. Yeah. And then the film is told you, you get the details basically once and then a second time in flashback um, a little bit more about what actually happened. And um, so you start weaving some things together. But there's this sequence in which... Um, Basically, Mia McKenna, Bruce's character, um, Tara, is um, the only one of her three friends who is a virgin. Um, and they're like teasing and razzing her. And I will note that this is like one of the films that has kind of, it, to me, it's obviously aimed at young people too, because it kind of has like all of the check boxes of diversity. Like there's a black lesbian friend yeah, yeah, and... Yes. Um, <laughs> 
who, you know, gets her own hookup um, and potential, you know, summer fling in the film and um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, um, and then the breakages are already starting to show at the beginning. There's like a tall friend. Actually, I can't remember her name. <laughs> the tall friend. The tall, the tall community friend. represented. Yeah. But it's like the tall blonde friend. Yeah. Who is like the hot one and like is the one that knows how to put on makeup and like has all of the cool clothes that she's loaning to Mia, like to Taz, um, Tara. And then it, there's like one evening in which Tara perhaps bites off a little bit more than she can chew, um, decides to leave her friend crew and go out. And then there's somebody who's been sort of circling the edges of another friend group, an older friend group that they are in the room next to, who kind of identifies it as a um, her being in a vulnerable position. And, and like, tries to swoop in. And swoops in. Yeah. Yeah. And then... Um, but before that happens, like we see her disappear and then it like cuts ahead to the next morning. And then there's like a really devastating sequence of like how everybody reacts when they realize she's gone. Yeah. She still hasn't come back since last night. Um, and so to me, like all of these relationships, um, the friendships, the um, kindness of strangers in one yeah. of the flashbacks, you realize that she's actually saved from something worse happening to her that night because she like gets there's there's kind of all of these there's a, there's a random group that pulls pulls her, her in, in and just takes care of her yeah when she doesn't have her phone or anything and they're like a very wholesome group so there's kind of like every type of relationship at like for the love interest there's like the more awkward funny looking guy who's actually kind of nice who's actually kind of nice Team badger and, and his name is badger yeah. um and uh, and then he has his best mate that he grew up with on the same street who is, like, the hot one. Everybody thinks and he's the hot head. one. And a shithead. I mean, that yeah. really, you can, you know, derive yeah. from that. I yeah. mean, yeah, I think that, you know, as you're describing it, so I wasn't, like, very sold on this film, even though I don't think mm. it's bad. It's, like, very well made. I think it's very moving. The performances are excellent. Um it was a very interesting anthropological window into British youth. Uh, Kelly, oh as someone who lived in the UK, do British young people really drink that much? Because I was getting a secondhand hangover. Yeah. Um, this event that they go to is so crass. And like, it's like they have these, they go to these, you know, it's like a concert where men are encouraged to come up and then women have to like blow them on the stage and there's like a contest to see who can gets erect first. Hard. I mean, it, it just like, yeah. yeah, it's all of this. And so you already see how toxic this is and that for a, for these young girls coming out of college who don't yet know how to like tell these things apart, right? Like partying, like they all want to be cool. They want to like have sex. They want to drink a lot. And, you know, we're all obviously older than that age. So we can like, I think... Watching it, you all of us can maybe connect to that time when we yeah. wanted, we aspired to things that we didn't know we didn't want, right? Yeah. And like how that how that ends leads us to places we don't ultimately want to be in. And I think the film captures that really well. And all the dynamics that you're mentioning, Abby. I, I did find it a little bit familiar, though, because I do think mm. that 
in the last four or five years, there have been many um, films like these, a lot of independent films, uh, but also TV has taken up this mantle yeah. a lot of exploring, uh, like, the more difficult aspects of delineating consent where it's not as straightforward as said, you know, someone said no and then that no was violated. Like other kinds of power dynamics that are predatory and but can may not be, we may not be able to nail them down that easily as a violation of consent. And especially when that happens to young people who, uh, you know, are again, like in, in this kind of environment um, and just don't know like, you know, again, are like and want things that they don't know how what what those things really mean. Like, what does it mean to have sex? Like, she really wants to get laid, but what is actually sex? Like, what kind of experience is that? And I just feel like there's been a lot of films like that. And uh, Michaela Cole's "I May Destroy You." I don't want to mm. make a glib parallel because that's a very different kind of work, and it's about a woman of a different age. But that TV series, it, to me, is like one of the best things. Um, best piece of media in a long time. And it gets into all of this with so much complexity and from so many different angles that this film felt a little bit simple to me in contrast, especially because the film ends with her coming to terms with what happened and telling her friends. And mm. and then it like very quickly ends. The, I found the ending. No, I don't think she's come to terms with it at all. Well, not come yeah. to terms, but it ends with her kind of finally mm. articulating to her friends what has happened. And I think that that, you know, I was just like, yes, we've all been there. And, you know, I, I wish that the film had delved more into how she actually deals with that and how that then changes her relationships, like a little bit of the after, because it it ultimately just gave told me what I've seen in many films and know we all know from personal experience. It just reminded mm. me, just reinforced these things that we already know. And I think I'm, now I feel like I'm looking for films that go a little bit further mm. in talking about like how young women what they make of these experiences, especially today in 2023, where the conversation has, you know, complicated a lot more than it was like five, six years ago. So that's my only reservation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that this film is like, you know, a grand ambitious film that deals with like, you know, the meaning of life. I, I don't. I would even characterize like the last film we discussed as a small film, but that's far more expansive than this one um in in many different ways but for me like the immersion is really quite special in this film it really feels like you're just careening like secondhand hangover I think it's a really great way to describe it um but I was also you know it, it's really interesting that you say you wanted more of the af aftermath because um I should reveal that I'm not here at Cannes as a film critic um uh, and I've been going to film festivals like on a market badge recently. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the screenings that I'm attending are actually the market screenings with buyers and programmers, so on and so forth. And I did notice at my screening that all of the straight looking guys <laughs> looking happy, I, I mean, <laughs> don't say that. Don't just say that. don't say all that. The straight guys. I don't know. Um, I mean, just there were many men <laughs> in the audience who were on their phones the entire second half of the film 
which is like after the kind of the gap yeah but before like the first flashback start um and like and at the same time like the woman who is sitting next to me like in the the last morning the scene of the last morning she was like nearly hyperventilating i was too yeah i had to do like deep breathing throughout the film because it was making me so anxious and the people next to me were like are you okay and i was like really immersive and like the friend that i'm staying with at can she told me when she watched it like like the guy like sitting next to her like a friend of hers like and her like held hands and were like you know nearly hugging each other like because they could barely stand to watch it there's something about how immersive this is that i don't experience when i'm watching kind of all of the amazing tv shows and like from euphoria to sex education to whatever it is that you're watching um yeah um and i think that is I mean, it's it might not actually even be a good quality of the film. One thing I was thinking about while I was watching it was this could very easily be used like as a conservative PSA against drinking premarital sex, yeah, like all of this stuff too. Was, yeah. And so ultimately, because it is, because like Mia McKenna, Bruce's character, like part of her acting is that she's the, or part of the situation is that she's unable to articulate what happened and she barely she like implies what happens at the end and so you know to me it's kind of like what happens when you make i'm not saying this is a documentary but i'm thinking of it in the same ways as i'm thinking of an observational documentary where there's no voiceover not necessarily clear um the positionality of what's happening you know yeah i think you you hit the nail on the head and i think that's what for me is the reservation which is first of all i found it a very trying experience to watch just because it you know, it made me very anxious. And when a film puts me through that, I have to ask to what end, right? And it's very moving. And I think we, we saw the things, you know, we, we read it through this lens, uh, through a particular lens, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if the film offers that lens necessarily. And because they, what you just said, like she comes, close to articulating but doesn't quite articulate it at the very end there is a little bit of uncertainty about how all the hard partying that much of the film is just about hard partying it's just about them all partying at this insane place I do wonder you know what different people might take away from the film about the girls' participation in that milieu yeah, and yeah, and consent and all of that. I should mention we should mention too that Molly Manning Walker is a cinematographer, very rare female cinematographer, and she did lens um, her. This is her first feature mm-hmm. film as a director, and I mean part of the immersion is just that. I mean it's it's like. It's not shot like a documentary. It's just extremely close and intimate and well lit and, you know, exactly what's happening in every single scene. And that's part of the horror and stress of it all as well. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the grand finale. And Kelly, I know that, uh, yes, last night you saw your father's movie as (laughs) as, uh, you put on your Instagram. I know you are a Marty girl. You may not be... Yeah. A Riverdale girl. <laughs> you may not be all the other. You are a Marty girl. I am in his community. That's my community. <laughs> the Martin Scorsese fanboys and girls. Like, I'm part of them. Yeah. Martin Scorsese, um, I would say, is 
was a huge part of my um, formative cinematic experience. Like he basically raised me, you know, that's, that is my dad. That's why I said that. He, you know, he's a, I, I think that there had been a period, I want to say like a couple of years before this where, you know, when a director has become a giant or like a pillar of this industry, and they've been working for so long. And then you start hearing like a lot of reductive characterizations of their work. And that really bugged me because I do think like, you know, you you really it's very rare that you can do that in a way that is actually authentic. But, you know, he has long made these films about uh, you know, what it means to like actually assimilate into America and what that mm -hmm. journey is, how costly it is. Um, and I love that, you know, he's a deeply Catholic director. I unfortunately, Devika's laughing because she's like, not again. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you, like, this is trauma. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, but yeah, like I, you know, I, I'm not one of those people who feels like, you know, oh my gosh, like I, I see myself in it. Like that is, that also feels like, um, um, uh, not quite complete. And I don't, I don't think of films in that way as like, you know, a sense of, of recognition really. Mm -hmm. But, um, I think that he is able to articulate something like really express something about, um, or through his portraits of America that, that feel to me, that always feel to me like quite generative and dynamic. And yeah, I just, I love his films. So that's my little, you know, Scorsese spiel. I didn't mean to go off on that. Uh, <laughs> go off. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Killers of the Flower Moon, which honestly probably the most anticipated film of the festival. Mm. Um, the cues were crazy. Um, and yeah, I mean, Kelly, do you want to talk about like the film? Yeah, I mean, pff, where to begin? I this know. is like a th <laughs> this is a and we should try not. I mean, it's based on it's based real on history, true. but also yeah. like there's so much happens that you want to don't want to give it all away. Right. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, I mean, I think at this point everybody knows that uh, this man William Hale. Uh, well, I mean, I suppose I should start with like at a certain point, like around like 1810 or something like that, like they found oil in Osage County. And because this was, you know, indigenous land, like a lot of indigenous people became very wealthy. I'm sort of like sprinting through an exploration, but you got to yeah. hit that Wikipedia ASAP. It's yeah. kind of, it's fascinating. Um, but yeah, so all of these indigenous people, these indigenous families became quite wealthy. Uh, but still under very obviously white supremacist conditions. So they had to get like guardianships and things like that in order to like move their money or use their money and things like that. Um, and so, uh, you know, like the white people living there began to marry with them, have children with them. I mean, like that was al already happening. But, you know, this um, intermarriage became a kind of... Um, uh, is it is it crude to say like transactional? I mean, it's no, very I, like the, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it, what the that's when it's the definitely film makes. transactional yeah. upon you know the part of these white men. And I, I mean, obviously you can cut this if we're not meant to say this, but these what, what you begin to see as the film goes on is that these men are willing to kill their wives, their children for this money that is wrapped up in the inheritance. oil, yeah, and, and inheritance and. Um, it is essentially the story of, it, it starts off, and I, this is something I definitely have to say, <laughs> spoiler or not, if you don't want to hear spoilers, I don't know why you're listening to this, but like <laughs> this, it starts off as being, and I think, you know, everybody has been, uh, you're sort of wrapped up in the Leo DiCaprio of this. He's playing this kind of, um, submissive, like greedy kind of like, you know, just really, 
uh, unlikable, like very creepy, <laughs> just venal. <laughs> He's just like a disgusting man. Um, somebody I know was described as Leonardo DiCaprio in his busted era. <laughs> Actually, true. though, I mean, yeah, anyway, yes. I'll, I'll say more. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the thing that one of the things that was really unexpected for me, pleasantly surprising, was that this is a De Niro film. This is a film about yeah. Robert De Niro. And when I tell you this man gives a fantastic performance, it is it is stunning. And I I want to talk a little bit more about that, too, perhaps later. But I'll just say, you know, and just like maybe describe like oh i should say the, yes. what characters they play robert yeah. de niro plays leonardo so leonardo dicaprio plays uh ernest he has a different name buckman burkhart burkhart and he burkhart. has come <laughs> you know i mean that's a name he deserves <laughs> but he has come back from uh war and and uh he is just like very submissive to his uncle who he calls king um and robert de niro plays his uncle william hale who has masterminded this uh, scheme for many of these white men in this in this town to marry indigenous women and kill them and get their inheritance that way, or wait for them to die from sickness brought wait, by white people, right? Yeah. Uh, well, or actively poisoning them, right, In many right. instances, and so yeah, he Robert De Niro plays this. He he's this like you know businessman, and um, it is fascinating because in his his relationship his partnership with Scorsese Robert De Niro is often playing these you know like scrappy Italian men who are like you know he's the Leo often he, in the in, in the old Scorsese movie right. right and I mean, it's interesting to think of like you know like the kind of um uh like all American kind of guy that Leonardo DiCaprio represents and and the kind of persona that Robert De Niro has is very like different, right? Like yeah. they're situated differently um, in their oeuvres, like when it comes to, to tales like this. And Robert De Niro here is playing like this American giant, like a, a, a kind of figure that we all recognize. Um, this man who is characterized by his wealth and his presumed uh, philanthropy, but who is a deeply depraved uh racist misogynist just like has almost no humanity or compassion for others completely manipulative and that is the figure that he is he's a villain of the piece but man i was like wow um the boys are back and <laughs> they're doing wonderful things so i i really really the boys are back. uh love this so yeah i mean it's 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 you know they and obviously like you know they just did the irishman together and the Irishman was good, but this feels um, completely um, different and new for them. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I think that it took me a little while to grapple with the film. I saw it last evening. I think it's a very heavy film. It is. It's very heavy. And, um, you know, I think there are, I do have some problems with it. And one of them is, so Lily Gladstone is, um, plays a major role in the film. She yeah. is this uh, woman who has a lot of oil money, um, who takes care of her sick mother. She has three sisters. They're very wealthy. And they've known William Hale, you know, for a long time. And Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Ernest, marries her and then, William Hale and they both like set in motion a scheme to slowly I mean I don't know if again yeah this is hard this is spoiler territory yeah. but like basically to like kill all her living relatives one yeah. by one eventually her so that he can get 
all the money and, you know, and the uncle can get all the money. And she is, first of all, she's so beautiful. I mean, she just has mm. this incredible screen mm. presence, right? And um, is a great performer. And I think what gave me a little bit of pause is that I think Lily Gladstone exudes intelligence. Mm. I mean, that's just her screen persona, mm -hmm. right? She has, and in the beginning of the film, especially she's magisterial. She's mm. very self-sufficient. You know, she looks at everything. When Ernest starts flirting with her, she's immediately like, the coyote wants money. Yeah. You know, she, so she's so canny. And I know this is based on a real story, but it just, I found it harder and harder to believe that this woman I was seeing on screen mm. could not completely see through what was happening around her and mm. could not see through this gross little man I know. <laughs> who is claiming to love her and is like just doing all these. And it, it just mm. like the, the 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 fact that we have to believe that she is both this incredibly beautiful and intelligent and mm. also so naive and ignorant till the end that was the one thing that took me out of the movie and i just i i need mm. to say that because i just feel like <laughs> i was so excited to see lily gladstone in this cuz i love yeah. her mm -hmm. and somehow i did come away feeling she was underserved by how the role was written she definitely is and i mean the thing about uh, my dad, unfortunately, is that he, he is not a famously, famously <laughs> not great at writing women. Exactly. And yeah. I think that's very true and glaring here. Much of what is so, um, uh, you know, sort of jumps off the screen about her performance is obviously to do with her, right? And like the way that she is so like watchful, you're right. I love the way that you described her as magisterial. She really is. And she goes through this evolution through a, really a tr kind of transformation throughout the film that I made sense of in my head as you know you learn a little bit about this character as it goes as time goes on her mother is played by this wonderful indigenous actress who I've loved for a long time Tantu Cardinal uh who who has long deserved her own starring <laughs> vehicle but whatever um and she has this really contentious relationship with her. She's not the favorite child, but she's the child who stays and took care of her mother. Her older sister is um, this woman who is quiet, you know, she's like very sensual, sensual and, and sultry, but she's also obviously an alcoholic. And, and you know, you get little um, uh, traces of this family dynamic and you don't really get, you don't really get a whole portrait of it but you get glimpses of like what it must have been like to be you know among the girls in this family there's a there's a younger daughter too and um their relationships I think are are played really well by those actresses um but I really think that to me I think it it, it feels understandable that this character who's probably been lonely for a very mm. long time uh would fall for this man right like he's basically the only other support that she has. I mean, right. as far as we see, she doesn't really have any friends outside of her family. It's just him. And I think if you have been starved for affection for that long, as it seems that she has been with her in her relationship with her mother, I, I find it very believable. I mean, mm. we all know incredibly intelligent women who bind themselves <laughs> to men who are beneath them. So that to me is is totally Kelly's reasonable. Like, <laughs> We've I've seen, seen it. This. Yeah. <laughs> We yeah. know this story. And I think what also is I, I find like I, I really um, uh, enjoy is not the word, but I, I felt um, I love this complexity that she is not a 
quote unquote perfect victim, right? Like she's a deeply flawed character who makes really dubious choices that hurt her family yeah that hurt her family that hurt her yeah and her refusal to actually you know um employ like that discernment that we see in the beginning is so completely um I, I find that th- that to give like a, it gave like a lot of richness and, and texture to a character that could easily have been, um, you know, played in a much flatter, much more sterile way, I think. And yeah. um, I think that Lily Gladstone just does a really wonderful, beautiful job. Um, I was incredibly taken by her performance, as I as I always am. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the truth is that, yeah, she spends a lot of time. Confined to bed. She yeah. spends a lot of time in the house. and or yeah. moping. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, but I, I, I should also, I, I just want to mention that this film is a really rich historical mm. text. Mm. A rich historical <laughs> text over here. Um, but, you know, it's based on a book by David Gran. And um, I think it's a story whose details a lot of people may not know, the specific mm. details. So I actually found it, and it uses, like, there's archival, there's some fake yeah. archival footage, but there's also some real, real archival footage, mm. like, from the Tulsa massacre, like, the photos yes. from the Tulsa massacre. And um, it just does this thing of being very historically significant, but also a Marty film in that it's very entertainingly made. And in many ways, it is a mafia film. The mafia yes. here are the white settlers who basically are like a criminal gang slowly looking to take over mm-hmm. this place and this people. And so there's a lot of familiar touches of a Marty film. Like you, the perf- I mean, Leo's character felt very familiar to me. Absolutely. Right? That, like he's a very Scorsese hero. Mm-hmm. And so I did really enjoy that balance of genre, you know, a kind of very comfortable and known genre framework, but in a way that we really haven't seen before because it's taking up this history that I personally have never seen mm-hmm. as the basis for genre, this this kind of genre narrative, right? right? And it, it it is something remarkable that this extremely painful, brutal history is turned into something very watchable, very entertaining without subtracting the pain from it or without like making it flippant. And I should just say, I don't want to spoil this because it's so wonderful, but I will just say there was a coda Mm, where the film leaves it's already been spoiled online in various I know, but you know, but I I don't, because we want to respect here. I I want to, but it is a coda where the film steps out of its narrative into Mm. a, like into a frame narrative for a second which again is so it ha- does all these things of being very funny being historically kind of sig- you know significant mm. in many ways in the way in the staging but also in the content of the scene and then really moving and you sort of see marty's intention yes. very explicitly laid out there yeah and you know i did come up you know i always wonder with these things i'm like oh you know were what were the native people involved like what was their involvement how did they feel and i did read a twitter thread yesterday yes uh by an um a, a member of the osage county uh yeah. tribes of a former chief who was i think i, I don't know if he had an explicit position but it was a part of a community of people who advised on the film and who right. were consulted during the making of the film and 
he expressed great admiration for the way Marty and his team had worked with them. They yeah. apparently rewrote the script during yeah. the pandemic. It was initially more about the FBI's investigation of these murders. After talking to this community, consulting, Ugh. they rewrote the script to actually center the Osage people, their language, their cultures, and like shift the perspective of the story. Right. Which, oh my God, if this had been a story about the FBI. I would <laughs> actually jump off a cliff. I yeah. yeah. But I mean I think that's 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 perfect. I'm so glad that you brought that up, right? Yeah. Because that the the script definitely transformed after they had more indigenous involvement. And obviously some directors do that in this in a way of checking a box, but it's clear that a lot of care was taken here. There are moments where um the language is not actually translated and that moment of like privacy something about that feels like I, I I don't know it feels like very thoughtful in a way it comes at like really particular and and obviously like strategic moments um I also want to say like you know we talked about um the archive and and the Tulsa massacre which I I was incredibly grateful for the integration of that because it's obviously all part of the same project right I think Again, like as I said, like uh, Scorsese has always been, you know, throughout his career, his oeuvre is basically defined um, by this, by by these films that are sort of emblematic of this nation's genesis, and this, never more so than in this film, right? Like, I mean, this film all, like is directly about it's that. literally right. that, and there is something in in that is like really tragically in all its tragic poetry about the way this particular white man and these white men have come in and have poisoned this people they have again robbed, literally literally poisoned them but <laughs> yeah. also it, it literally poisoned them in so many in a multitude of ways they have brought uh depression alcoholism death that is like you know to to watch that and also have like this intimate really um human characterization especially of these indigenous characters i think is hugely you know, I hate this word, but like important, you know, because it doesn't happen often. You don't get to see that, right? Like on this scale, exactly. Yeah, no. and I think, and the, and the, you know, DiCaprio is a kind of you know Scorsese and hero, and everything from you know his involvement with the FBI to his like, you know, it's it's giving Goodfellas. <laughs> it's like, and I and I just which is now the new name of the company, yeah. formerly known as Wild Brunch. <laughs> But I do like really um, respect how these characters are so deeply, deeply noxious. You know, every single one of them. There's not a hero. There, there is a not a single you know not coward among them. Right? Like these are deeply demented men, and they have no um, just like just no, when you, when you see them testifying about what they are doing. There's no capacity or or recognition of the horror, right? Like I said, like these are men who are literally willing to kill children for money. I mean, the film, like a lot of Scorsese films, is also about, the, I mean, the corruption of money. And mm -hmm. it just like completely flattens human beings. And then racialized capitalism in this case, you right. know, in the combination of money and the desire for power. And then this like kind of racial dynamic, I think. Um, yeah, it just, it just. It just feels like a very significant film and definitely more so than the last couple Marty films. I mean, mm -hmm. The Irishman, I enjoyed a lot, but this feels 
Again, not to overuse this word, it feels important. Mm. And I came away really... I mean, I I was watching it with some people who were like, I feel like I was hit by a train or something. Like Mm. They were like, I just need to sit and process this. Um, Well, (laughs) on that note... Maybe it's time to wrap it up. We've been talking for quite a minute and like we covered some really good... I mean, we liked these films a lot, which is, you know, a a great haul of films Mm. we had. So thank you so much, Kelly and Abby, for joining and for your insights. Thank you for having us. And I'll see you around at the festival. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.